0: What I want to do is summarize all of um, sleep medicine in a four day kind of course. Each day is going to be uh, one hour. When you guys take, you know, a chest review course for pulmonary boards, they actually will summarize all of sleep medicine in around three hours. So I didn't want to rush that much. So here's going to be our course for this time. So we're gonna start off with some basic f- sleep physiology to kind of relate to everything in the sleep topic. We're gonna, to sp- today we're gonna to spend the most time on the highest yield topic, which is sleep disordered breathing. We're gonna focus on obstructive sleep apnea, central sleep apnea, OHS. Then in our next days, we'll be focusing on insomnia and hypersomnia. And then we're gonna focus on the third day, circadian rhythm disorders, talking to things like shift work, delayed sleep-based syndrome. We're gonna talk about parasomnias, which is always a fun topic, like sleepwalking and REM movement disorder. And then at the end, we'll talk about sleep-related movement disorders, which includes things like uh, a restless leg syndrome, though that's not technically a sleep disorder. So let's get started. We have to go back to the basics. So what is going to be normal sleep? Because I think that's the hardest part is what is normal and abnormal. And you do have to know some basic sleep staging, even for the pulmonary boards, because that will help you answer certain questions when it comes to things like parasomnias. When do we see obstructive sleep apnea the most? When do we see central sleep apnea the most? So it's nice to know some sleep staging. So let's talk about adults. And one thing about sleep, when we talk about, you know, what's normal or not, you kind of want to make sure you're talking about adults. And of course, in the pulmonary boards, most people are adults when they talk about sleep. But sleep in general is divided into two main divisions. There's going to be non-REM and REM. And when we talk about non-REM sleep, there are going to be three stages. It's going to be stage N1, N2 and N3, and N stands for non-REM. And when norm, normally when we all fall asleep, we go into N1 sleep. And when we talk about our sleep cycle over here, remember as we go further and further down into non-REM sleep, it just takes a little more stronger stimulus for us to wake up. You know, we like to wake up feeling refreshed around N1 stage of sleep, but if we wake up in the deeper stages of sleep of N1, of non-REM sleep, such as slow wave sleep or Delta sleep, You may feel a little groggy when you wake up. And I put this here because it's amazing how technology and sleep just go hand in hand nowadays. And there's always these like gadgets and things to uh, ensure us that we wake up refreshed and ready to go. And one of the things out there was actually, there's these things called these uh, apps that try to uh, based upon some algorithm guarantee you wake up during the lighter stages of sleep. So you won't feel tired by waking up in those deeper stages. And sometimes we use a terminology when you wake up in the morning groggy, like the sleepiness, we call that sleep inertia, where it just takes a while to get it going. So people thought that, hey, we'll use little apps on your phone to wake you up during these lighter stages. But the key thing is non REM sleep, three stages. The lighter stages are N1. As you go to the deepest stage, N3, You require stronger stimulus to wake up and N3 sleep very, very important. When we talk about feeling refreshed the next day and rejuvenating the body, both mentally and physically. So from wake, we go into the light stages of NREM. And when do we not go into non REM sleep? When we fall asleep, I think of two things. I think number one, back to age that, you know, when we're actually newborns, you know, and it's kind of interesting because a newborn is usually from birth to the third month of life. Don't confuse that with infant, which is going to be from birth to the first year of life. But when you're a newborn, you know, you basically, when we try to score them, we just go from non-REM to REM to a transitional state. And when I think about newborns, it's kind of interesting in the sense that, you know, as adults, we usually are monophasic when we sleep, meaning that we try to sleep all at night. That's what we do. You know, even though our circadian rhythms a little biphasic where we feel sleepy during lunch, we definitely feel sleepy at night. But as kids I mean they sleep polyphasic they sleep meaning that that first three months of life or that first three to six months of life that they're just going to actually just, you know, sleep almost all the time just going right into REM or right into non REM sleep. So that's going to be a time where you just transition, you know, right into, uh, you know, REM sleep or non REM sleep right from wake another time where you may not go into non REM sleep is going to be narcolepsy. And we'll talk more about that in our lectures coming up. I think in a few days where they would just fall asleep right into REM instead of the traditional falling into sleep into non REM. So REM sleep follows non REM. And you know, when we talk about how often does it occur it occurs around four to five times per night, you can see right here in the yellow, that you get four to five uh, REM cycles. And in the early parts of the night, your REM cycle could be like, minutes then as you get closer to the morning it could be almost like 60 minutes and that's why most of our ram is in the morning that's why sometimes we wake up from these dreams it's not abnormal to hear that and there is a cycling between non-rem and ram that has a varies between uh, 70 to 120 minutes so rem sleep in itself has two components you know and we call that phasic ram and tonic ram and why is it very important to talk about this is because when we talk about Phasic REM, you know, it's sympathetically driven and questions they love to ask is going to be, you know, in sleep, when is your heart rate the fastest, when is your blood pressure, the highest, and it's important to realize during the REM sleep, especially phasic REM it's sympathetically driven. So it's going to be very important that when we have higher blood pressure at night, we notice that this may occur in REM sleep, contrary to non-REM. And, you know, in phasic REM, yes, you'll see these rapid eye movements, you can get these muscle twitches. And even during, you know, phasic REM, though, we always say that, hey, your body is going to be paralyzed, even when we talk about something called rhythmic movement disorders, and that's things like when kids are trying to fall asleep, their body rocking and doing things in transition, you could even have rhythmic movement disorders in REM sleep. And in tonic REM, you know, we, it's really parasympathetically driven. I'll mention that in the purpose of it you know, throughout the lecture and atomic REM, you're not going to see those eye movements that we're talking about. So REM sleep going to be very important. So when we talk about the importance of what of why is it non REM or REM? Well, I think it's important that non REM, where do we get a lot of the both the mental and physical rejuvenation, our bodies in that deep sleep, they call M3 or slow wave sleep or delta sleep. Many non REM parasomnias, such as sleepwalking occur in non REM sleep, and that occurs predominantly in the early parts of the night, as you can see here, when we look at this sleep cycle over here versus REM parasomnias, such as nightmares, such as something called REM movement disorder, they happen closer to the morning, because we tend to have more REM sleep as we go closer to the morning. This is going to be very important when we talk about changes of sleep with age. And notice how in age it starts off here at five years. So we're missing quite a bit over here. Obviously, you know, we talked about there's uh, newborns, zero to three months, where, you know what, I mean, we have polyphasic sleep. They're sleeping all the time. Then we go into infants up to the first year of life. Toddler, for those who don't know, are going to be from one year to three years. And then after toddler, that's going to be preschool. So we're starting right around preschool here at age five. And look at our total sleep time at age five compared to when you get older in age. And so obviously, when you look at this as a whole, the takeaway messages that total sleep time decreases, look at our slow wave sleep, which is going to be N three sleep delta sleep, we have a lot of it when we're younger, you know, that's why we get a lot of sleepwalking and non REM parasomnias is when we're younger, we not as much as when we're older, look at REM sleep itself that we lose the amount of REM as we uh, get older. And there's something called WASA wake after sleep onset. So when we're younger, we don't tend to wake up as much, but unfortunately, as we all get older, we have multiple wake things throughout the night. We don't get enough slow wave sleep and REM sleep. And a take home message is that as all of us get older that, Hey, the, the, the need for sleep doesn't change. We all need great sleep, but do we get it? Not really for a variety of reasons. So this is why it's always important when we talk about sleep. Well, what age are we talking about? And when we're talking about the importance of non-REM and REM, and why do they start to the lecture with that, that remember when they talk about blood pressure and heart rate, it's always relative to what, you know? So of course your heart rate and blood pressure is going to be lower compared to when you're awake, you know, what I mean, when you're sleeping, but when you're in non-REM compared to wake. Heart rate, blood pressure go down, respiratory rate decreases, your minute ventilation goes down. Minute ventilation is always gonna be your respiratory rate times your tidal volume. Muscle tone is about the similar when you as when you're awake. And you know, when you fall asleep, there's some stability in non-REM, but there's increased vagal tone. But when we compared RAM to non-REM, this is where heart rate and blood pressure increase. Respiratory rate increases a little bit. You know, minute ventilation is as far as tidal volume will go down, but your respiratory rate will increase muscle tone is absent, which is why we see things like obstructive sleep apnea the most in REM sleep. And remember, you're getting this sympathetic surge that you're not going to get in non-REM that we have in REM, which is very important. So let's start talking about some sleep staging. So it is amazing how long I've been doing uh, our fellowship for. Here's our one of our first fellows over here. And here are some of our newer fellows. I think everyone sees Dr. Uh, Samani posing for the camera picture right there. So this is going to be wake. And so when we think about wake, when you're looking at a sleep study, and you're looking at the EEG, that this is going to be wake eyes closed. And this is wake eyes open. When we think about wake eyes closed, you see these waves over here. And these are what we call alpha waves. And when you are awake, eyes closed, sometimes you call that a predominant posterior rhythm. And it makes sense because you know, you're thinking about all your occipital your leads, that's really gonna be focusing on what you're looking at. So you see a posterior dominant rhythm, you see a lot of alpha waves. And this is actually um, wake eyes open and it almost looks like Ram. And sometimes people would say that being awake and REM are almost very similar. And you can imagine that. And I didn't look at the whole, what we call 32nd epoch. This almost looks like a rapid eye movement in itself, but this is wake eyes closed, wake eyes open. Now their eyes are fully closed. And this is what we call pure alpha rhythm. So I'm seeing a lot of these, these are 32nd epochs that they will give you on your pulmonary boards and I wait till they fall asleep. So when I see about wake eyes closed, though, that I always say that I look for slow rolling eye movements. So i going to be up here looking for some slow rolling eye movements. The EEG shows over 50% alpha waves. And you know, when we, I know how it's an alpha wave, if I take down this, the 32nd to a one second epoch, if I literally count out the cycles, the frequency, it's gonna be around eight to 13 cycles per second. EMG, it's gonna be very high tone because they're awake. And of course, the big thing is always like the eyes and you want to know about how we replace the electrodes for the eyes and what do we see. So in the right eye, we place an electrode in the right upper part of the eye in the left, the left lower part of the eye. And when we talk about EEG in sleep, it's a little backwards when you compare it to ECG for the heart. So a Uh, positive deflection is actually going down, which is weird, and a negative deflection is going up, which is weird. But when I put these electrodes here, what happens is I tell the patient to look right. So the most anterior part of the eye is the cornea, and the most posterior part of the eye is the retina. So if I tell the patient to look right, the cornea is looking towards the right electrode. So when it looks towards the right, it's a positive deflection because the cornea is positive, look at the positive. So it's a positive deflection. So what happens in the right eye? It's positive, but it goes down. So you can imagine in the left eye, when I tell you to look right, same thing, that the cornea is furthest away from the left electrode. So it's actually give you a negative deflection. And a weird part is a negative deflection goes up. So if I tell the patient to look right, this is what it's gonna look like down here. Same thing if I make the patient look left. You know what I mean? If I make the patient look left, Cornea is going to be right smack next to the left electrode. That's a positive deflection, but weird enough, positive is going down. And therefore, the right cornea is going to be furthest away from the right electrode. So it's a negative deflection, so it's going to go up. So this is what we do when we look about rapid eye movements. And these are the placements of the eye leads over here. The right, which remember, right leads are always even numbers, left leads are always odd numbers. And this is where we get this configuration about the eye leads. So how do I know they're going to be an N1? So I'm scrolling along. You can see there's a lot of alpha over here. And all of a sudden, I love this word. The rhythm gets attenuated. So we get into this rhythm over here, which is a bunch of theta waves. And theta waves is the memorizing. I'll explain what they are. But the the signal actually reduces. And I circled this over here. And this is what we call a vertex wave. And when you're in N1 sleep, well, N1 is kind of like, we don't spend a lot of time in it, you know, it's kind of like you're in it for about five to 10 seconds of the night. And these alpha waves that we saw get replaced by what we call low amplitude mixed frequency, we like to say it over and over again, low amplitude mixed frequency, which are all these waves over here, intermingled with these theta waves. And when do I call it n one sleep, when 50% of this 32nd epoch has, you know, theta waves, then I would say that this is going to be n one sleep. Let's talk about this circle here, this vertex wave. So vertex waves, I put an actual really like a nice little picture of it next to a K complex. And this is something that we always argue about. Is it a vertex wave? Is it the K complex? The way I remember is that vertex waves are kind of like sharp waves. And I always tell my fellows when you see a vertex wave, It's kind of like a wave you don't want to sit on because it looks like it'd be really painful. So you don't want to sit on this vertex wave really 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 sharp and we see that in n1 sleep. Contrary to that you know a k-complex has a negative deflection because it's going up and a positive deflection going down. I still don't want to sit on it but I definitely don't want to sit on a vertex wave and so these vertex waves are also indicative of n1 sleep. You can have these slow rolling eye movements. And because it's still a lighter stage of sleep, you have some high uh, submental muscle tone over there. So this is how I know it's going to be N1 sleep. This is N2, and how do I know it's N2? I circled the two biggest buzzwords right here, which on the left this is the K complex, and this is going to be a sleep spindle. And now you can see this K complex, and I kind of put it next to here. You can see this is really a classic looking K complex over here, as a negative deflection going up and a positive deflection going down. And I'll give you the exact definition of what a spindle is going to be. But when I think about spindles, they are generated in the thalamus, you know, and when I look one of my favorite leads, because when we have EEG leads over here, for us to score a sleep study, everyone, we just need really three places for these leads. They need to be on the frontal, the central and the occipital. Those are the main places. And if someone asked me, where does the wave come from? And I kind of blank and I don't remember. Chances are, if you say central leads, it's probably going to be the right answer. Most stuffs are seen over the central leads. A sleep spindle is usually around twelve cycles. If you want to count it out, you know, in a one-second segment. And when I think about sleep spindles, one of these buzzwords for many of the board exams is if you get a lot of spindles. Benzodiazepines, your lorazepam, alprazolam, uh, valium, xanax, all those will give you what they call pseudo So, in the right clinical context, you wonder. It's always good to look at that medication list. K complexes, so I, we show, I showed you those examples of what K complexes are, a brief negative deflection, which is going up, positive deflection going down, um, and sometimes they do get confused with delta waves, which I'll show you in a second. Sometimes they do get confused with vertex waves, which I previously showed you, but you really need to have these steep spindles and K complexes to really call it N2 sleep, and when 50% of the epoch has characteristics of N2 sleep, I call it, And two, now we go into N three sleep and these, my friends are Delta waves. And usually they come in clusters they're not just isolated with one Delta wave. That helps me determine if it's a complex versus a slow wave. It has amplitude criteria and to call it N three sleep. It's going to be 20% of this 32nd epoch got to have these classic characteristics of these slow waves to call it N three sleep. So N3 is one of the deeper stages of non-REM. So important for learning, important for memory. Definitely REM helps out with this too. Sad part is it decreases with age. But when we're young, remember we talked about how what happens when we're young, how it changes our sleep architecture. When we're young, we got a lot of N3 sleep. I always say one of my favorite hormones in the whole world is growth hormone. And we love to have lots of growth hormone in N3 sleep when we're young. I think, isn't that why our parents told us to like, go to bed all the time. So we can so we can just grow, you know, when you're sleep deprived, one of the first stages to rebound back to is n3 sleep. So just an important thing to know how important it is. And on boards, one thing I've noticed, whether it's sleep or pulmonary boards, they love meds, and what do they do to our sleep. So there are three things that love to suppress n3 sleep. And they also suppress them also a little bit and that's going to be benzodiazepine, alcohol and opioids. Then the opposite is going to be what gives you more n3 sleep. And there are two things that I really put in my mind. One is going to be these oxabates. And now we have two oxabates out there. One is Xyrum, brand name, other is Zywave. We'll talk more about those in narcolepsy, but they increase slow wave sleep. And even though we don't use a lot of lithium clinically anymore, it still seems to make every boarding exam, which is pretty annoying. So lithium actually increases N3 sleep. And I won't say it enough by saying. One of the things that we see with lithium parasomnia wise is sleepwalking because it increases N3 sleep. So something to remember, if I want to call it Delta sleep, 20% of the epoch has got Delta waves. And of course, there's criteria for me calling a Delta wave. And I've mentioned already they come in clusters isolated, I may call the K complex. There's amplitude criteria for a Delta wave 75 millihertz and they're slow. Hence the word slow wave sleep. They're 0.5 to two cycles. And one thing I'll mention down here for uh, Sahar and those taking the board exams is that it stinks. We've got to memorize what are the filter criteria. So usually when we talk about EEGs, it's 0.3 to 35 Hertz of our filtering. Why? We've got to make sure we score these Delta waves. They come at 0.5. So we set our filters at 0.3 to 35 to make sure we could score those Delta waves accordingly. So let's talk about REM. So this is phasic REM because I can see these rapid eye movements over here and i also want to give you a shot of tonic ram but you couldn't call this tonic ram unless you saw phasic ram and for us when i read sleep studies when we have ram we always do something called not just keep on scoring and going ahead there's something called backscoring where i would backscore because rem is such an important sleep stage to have i backscore when i read to see something like this may be scored as tonic ram and the main thing i look at in these cases is muscle tone. So why is REM in general so important? Well, in a perfect world, it's around 20%, 25% of total sleep time. We have a decrease in EMG activity. Sawtooth waves, for some reason, we all memorize them, but they're not required for scoring. Just wanted to mention that. In REM, heart rate goes up relative to non-REM, blood pressure goes up relative to non-REM, and there's variability in the heart rate and in the respiratory rate. And I mentioned because of that lack of muscle tone that obstructive sleep apnea is worse in uh, REM sleep. And it's important to realize the phenotype of people have the worst REM associated OSA are actually young women. So that's an important thing to realize uh, for my, my sleep fellows, young women tend to get, you know, REM OSA quite a bit. And this is very important in general, because you know, when I think about obstructive sleep apnea, I think many of us just say. So important, someone they fall asleep with their CPAP on. I'm like, sure, but maybe we should be, maybe it's important they should just have their CPAP on closer to the morning because that's when you get most of the REM OSA to begin with. So, something to think about. And when we talk about things that affect REM sleep, think about antidepressants, things that suppress REM. In fact, no one uses this, but MAOIs suppress REM the most of all these antidepressants. And of course, we don't use MAOIs for a lot of reasons including you have to watch your diet. No one likes watching their diet. If you on MAOIs, what is it? You can't drink wine or eat cheese because of tyramine, you get that crisis. Well, that kind of stinks, you know? But TCAs, SSRIs, and SNRIs, all suppress REM. Another important thing is that SSRIs and SNRIs prevent atonia. That means in REM sleep, we lose muscle tone to protect us. You want to be paralyzed in REM but SSRIs and SNRIs prevent that loss of muscle tone, which you want. And that's why when there are disorders such as REM movement disorder, that we always wanna look at that medication list and see if they're on these types of medications. In my yellow box down here, there's something called REM density and a lot of my sleep fellows are like, what is REM density? So when you have a 30 second epoch, when you see more of these rapid eye movements in a 30 second epoch, That's called an increased REM density, and you see that in that basic REM. So with that being said, let's talk about some cool neuroscience for the board exams. So when we talk about sleep, everyone, you know, to an extent, to an extent, sleep is kind of the same thing like coma, except we tend to wake up from sleep. Uh, How does sleep work? Well, there are going to be definitely specific areas in the brain that will secrete very specific neurotransmitters. And there's a balance between that wake and sleep. And we'll go over that in detail. But one thing I just can't say enough of is that when we talk about, you know, sleep and wake that our hypothalamus really is geared towards sleep. So when you damage your hypothalamus, man, you're gonna have nonstop insomnia. And our brainstem is really geared towards wake. And our brainstem will always send signals towards our cortex. So if you mess up someone's brainstem, wow, they're just going to be hypersomnolent for quite a while. So you can think about hypothalamus for sleep, brainstem for wake. And when we talk about well, what really initiates us falling asleep? Well, sleep is going to be really governed by two processes. It's called the homeostatic drive, which is going to be process S, and then the circadian drive, which is process C. So what is the homeostatic drive? It just basically means the more that you stay awake during the day. The more you want to sleep at night. And what really drives this is going to be adenosine. So as adenosine builds up during the day, that really, really makes you want to fall asleep. And how do I understand this is that adenosine is the adenosine that's part of ATP, adenosine triphosphate. And you can imagine as your day progresses, and you're working and doing things that your each cell in your body needs energy, and you're just breaking down that ATP. So what builds up, Adenosine. So it makes sense. The more you work, more AT- more adenosine is building up and the more sleep you're gonna get. And one of these key buzz pearls for everyone's boards is always gonna be: hey, how does caffeine work? Because as you can tell, I'm drinking my coffee right now, and I'm sure other people are too. And the way caffeine works, it actually inhibits adenosine. So that's a cool little tip for the boards: is how's adenosine or caffeine work? So you have your homeostatic drive going up. The next thing is gonna be your circadian drive, we call that process C. And in humans we feel, you know, the need to sleep twice during the day, once around like noon to 2pm, you know, and the other is going to be at night. And our circadian rhythm is around 24 hours, it's around 24 hours, but there's always a plus or minus. So what is that plus or minus, it's going to be called cow. But most of us are circadian rhythm, is like 24.2 or something. And it's so much easier for us to stay awake during the night than go to bed early. And I think most of us can kind of relate to that. So what entrains us this circadian rhythm that we have to wake up in the morning and go to bed at night, it's going to be influenced by different stimuli. And these stimuli go by the name zeitgivers. And the most important external stimuli is Light, and that's why people used to say that zeitgebers kind of rhymes with light givers. So maybe that's going to be the most important thing that entrains our circadian rhythm. If they were to ask you what is the pacemaker of sleep, well, we know the pacemaker of the heart is the sinoatrial node. The pacemaker of sleep is the SCN, which is the superchiasmatic nucleus, and that's going to receive input from your eyes especially the retina. And in the retina, there are two types of receptors. You have what's called photoreceptors, and those are going to be your rods and cones, you know, cones for color and central rods for black uh, for nighttime vision, more in the periphery. But then we also have receptors in the retina that really, really focus on sleep. We call them melanopsin receptors and these melanopsin receptors will take input and we'll send them to the suprachiasmatic nucleus. And simply put they send signals to the pineal gland that will influence the release or not release melatonin. Okay. So when we talk about how do you sleep, it's when your homeostatic drive has a high pressure to sleep as you've been awake for a long time and your circadian rhythm is dipping down to sleep because you're tired. So when you have a high pressure to sleep and your circadian rhythm says sleep, that just makes you want to initiate sleep. And when does this usually perfectly overlap in a perfect world probably around 10pm at night for most people. So that's how we sleep. Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical advice. Ars longa, vita brevis.